This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. right now. Look for opportunities, value plays, uh, if you will. And let me just put this out there. The Evermore Global Value Fund beating just about all of its peers over the past one year. It's in the 80th percentile over the past five years, returning on average, according to Bloomberg data, nearly 4% a year in that time frame. David Marcus is co-founder CEO over at Evermore Global. Uh, they've got about a billion dollars in assets under management based in Summit, New Jersey, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. New York, are you glad 2018 is over? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it was not easy to be a value person. No, it was not. But at the same time, the fourth quarter, while it was a horrendous period of time, it just knocked down stocks and valuations so much. We were in there almost every bad day just adding to our positions. Right. You want to buy things when they're on sale. They were on sale. And so in a situation like that, are there names that you have identified and you're just waiting for them to hit a certain level and then you're in? Or are you taking a whole fresh look amid that newly introduced volatility? It's both. Okay. So we added to, so we have about 40 positions in our portfolio. We added to 17 of them during the fourth quarter. Well, so almost half. Yeah, almost half. And I would say we also reduced some to buy others. So I would say we, we sold some things that we liked to buy things that we loved because they came uh. down even more we think the opportunity is just as good as, as it was before, but the discount was now bigger. Right. So tell us what you love. We love names. Okay. Um, we love Vivendi. So Vivendi is a French conglomerate. Is that your top holding? It's, I think it's our top. It's in our top three. Yeah. Wanna, okay. It kind of moves around. But, but the bottom line is this is, a tele, this is a media conglomerate. They own Universal Music, which is the biggest music company in the world. Uh, so everybody that goes from free music to paying for it is a customer mm -hmm. ultimately um they've announced but what's their advantage over because there's so much streaming of music and i feel like everybody's you know fighting for a piece of the pie is it because they own the music they own it they own the catalog they um for example you somebody subscribes to spotify yeah spotify actually loses money because they're paying universal music for the music so you want to be the and guy the getting The economics have gotten a little bit better, right i mean like they've managed to like essentially sort of bring spotify i mean the the it's, right it's a little more balanced. Yeah. I mean, the it's artists are always going to want more. Yeah. Right. But the fact is, Universal has done some amazing deals lately, like with the Rolling Stones, where they're taking over managing not just their catalog, uh, but they're also going to help them with merchandising and everything else. So they, uh, because there's additional there's, revenue streams. Yeah, right? they want to manage the whole thing because if they don't, the Spotify's and these other guys are going to try to take over those artists over time and cut the music company out. I want to talk about KKR. This is something near and dear to Jason. He knows the private equity world really, really well. Uh, KKR, of course, in the news this week because of a deal. Tell us about KKR. You've been adding to that position. Yeah, so it's a reasonably new position, position for us. It's, um, I never thought we'd own it. We stay away from these publicly traded private equity companies. But what's unique here is they switched from a partnership right. to a C-Corp, which simply means that they will become a taxpayer. But more than that, they can be added to indexes, which they could not be before. A lot of asset managers would not buy companies that are partnerships. But here's the bottom line. The stock's about $22 a share. 
they have about $11 a share in net cash and investments. It's, it's a very robust uh, balance sheet. They use some of that money to seed the funds, to invest in the different investments they have going on. Uh, I think investors don't realize this is a company that has almost $200 billion of assets under management. Right. So they're an asset manager. They're a private equity business. Uh, it's very cheap. It's the cheapest one we think of all the publicly traded uh, uh, private equity You don't get worried about a downturn or so that might make it a little bit more problematic for these guys? I mean, I mean, that's where they find investment opportunities, right? But that's also where they have to maybe hold on to assets, can't turn them out. Yeah. I mean, look, this week it was announced that uh, First Data did its mm-hmm. deal. Yeah. Now, that was a stock uh, or a company that they took control of quite some time ago. 2007. Invest- yeah. And investors were like, oh, this is, this is a dog. It's yeah. not going to work. It was written way down yeah. over the course of that t- 10, 11 years. Right. And yeah, so 12, it ultimately, yeah. they probably, probably overpaid paid, but ultimately, it's a good deal, the loan a piece of the new company. Um, yes, as the economy slows down, as we're in a different part of the cycle, it's a little more difficult to get great opportunities at good prices, but we are in an environment where big conglomerates are breaking up, spinning off, yeah. selling That's non-core assets, uh, and these guys are positioned well, and they recycle their cash. Well, I, I'm glad you said that because that was something that really jumped out in, in the research that I was reading that, that you had, which is these guys, more so than the Blackstones and the Carlisles of the world, tend to essentially keep some of that cash and reinvest it in their own funds rather than distributing. Right. right. So they pay the lowest dividend uh, yield of all the other public ones because their view is we can do better for our shareholders if we reinvest that money into other compelling deals. These guys have gotten burned over the years in bad deals. Yeah. They've learned a lot. They're much smarter than they were in, in the old days. Right. And I think that they, they take advantage of it. They're making much more money from management fee than performance fee, where virtually every other private equity company that's public is the opposite. Mm. They're making more from performance fee, which means they have to have exits. KKR can wait till it's the right time. Well, that's what's interesting yeah. about the FISA. If you think about how long that went on, they could kind of wait yeah. until it paid off for them. I mean, it was yeah. a long time. Well, and that's the ultimate case of right? private equity. I mean, Blackstone would say the same thing about Hilton, right? I mean, Hilton came very close to bankruptcy a number yes. of times mm-hmm. and yet ends up being the most profitable private equity deal of all time. They have $14 billion. $4 billion or so, I think, KKR may end up making, depending on when they sell out for the, yeah. uh, for the first data deal. Yeah. And the other thing is the insiders own about 40% of the company. They're aligned with us as shareholders. Right. Which is critical. And they important. invest off their balance sheet, I believe, more aggressively. That They use their balance sheet more aggressively Absolutely. than some of the other names as well. They do. And, and look, as I said, you know, we're at the front end of so much change. I never thought we'd own a company like Dow DuPont. Yeah. You know, which is $120 billion more. It's breaking up. Right. Not only into three companies. We think it could be five or six. And so you have spinoffs, breakups, restructurings yeah. going on. It's just early in the process for this. That's get, what we focus on. We got to run. Always fun to talk names with you. Happy New Year, by the way. David Marcus uh, over at Evermore Global Advisors, over a billion in assets under management based in Summit, New Jersey, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We have the perfect guest with us. Uh, Weijian Shan is chairman and CEO of the Hong Kong-based private equity firm PAG, or do you say PAG? 
No, we say P-A-G. Okay, good. I wanted to make sure I had it right. He's also got a book out. It's called Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America. He is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And you guys have about $30 billion in assets under management. Uh, Your book is a very personal story uh, of really someone who overcame obstacles. But um, you also, I think, can provide some incredible insight into U.S.-China relations and maybe helping the United States understand China right now. Um, tell me a little bit, though. Let's start with that headline. And as you've been watching these U.S.-China negotiations, what do we have right? What do we have wrong? What don't we understand here as observers of this? First of all... And welcome. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, my book, Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America, I consider to be a recon of history. In fact, most horrific part of the Chinese history told through my personal experiences. From the perspective of my personal experiences, my stories are unique and yet quite representative of the people of my generation. But uh, that period of time, when I spent time in the Gobi, uh, came to an end when uh, China and America established a relationship and uh, when China opened up and I had a chance to come to the United States to study. Among the first, I think, right, to do so. I think so, because the diplomatic relationship was established in 1979. And this month, in fact, is the 40th anniversary of that relationship. It was after that some of the Chinese students were allowed to come to America to study. So I was among the first one. And I got three graduate degrees in the American uh, educational system. Eventually, I became a professor at Wharton School. So I witnessed the development of the relationship between China and the United States. And I would characterize that relationship to be mutually beneficial, by and large. And there are conflicts, there are disputes, there are differences. But I think, by and large, it has to be a mutually beneficial relationship. Is it, a, is it a mutual beneficial, or did you say it has to be a mutual beneficial, beneficial relationship? I is think, it one? I think it has to be it has mutually been, beneficial, yeah. Yeah, by and large. And so where are we today? Because there's a lot of rhetoric on, yeah. on both sides, and obviously the rhetoric has a tendency to move markets pretty dramatically, like we've just seen. What needs to happen next to ensure that either we get back to or that we maintain this mutually beneficial relationship? Well, I think people will have to recognize that the two economies at this particular point are quite integrated, joined at the hips, so to speak, to such extent that China is the largest trading partner of the United States and vice versa, to a tune of 500 billion U.S. dollars. And you know, from the point of view of any economist, Trade is better than no trade. More trade is better than less trade. And trade war harms everyone and brings pain to everyone. So the market likes it when they see a resolution to the trade disputes. And that's what we see today. But I am curious and a little conspiracy theorist here. But I think I do wonder if folks are wondering whether, you know, China is definitely a long-term planner. Right. And we have often many stories about, you know, spending 
and putting a lot of effort into expanding their domestic industries in much more high high tech arena. I mean, what's the what's the plan? Is it to shut itself from the rest of the world and be able to sell domestically as well as you know kind of dominate many industries going forward? Is that the correct perception, or do we have it wrong? I think the notion that China has a long term plan for this and that is kind of overrating China's ability to do so. Hmm. If you look at the path of the Chinese economic growth in the past 40 years, it was not due to central planning. In my book, Out of the Gobi, I talked about our experiences working as hard labor in the Gobi Desert more than 40 years ago. At that time, all economic activities were controlled by the government, Mm -hmm. by the state, Where was China at that time? It was in dire poverty. We could hardly, we could hardly support ourselves economically, and I was starving all the time. China has grown in the past, in fact, twenty some years, thirty times in terms of economic size, not by central planning, but by moving in the direction of the market. I think that is really the secret of. Chinese economic success. So today, the private sector, the market, is much more dominant than the remnants of the state-owned sector, which I believe is still too big, and it still needs to be shrunk even further. I want to ask you about one specific name which you're intimately familiar with, and that's Tencent. Your firm is a a huge investor, the second largest, I believe. what does that tell us about the state of business and maybe the state of the consumer in China right now? Well, my firm, PAG, is not an investor in Tencent, but we're an investor in a company called Tencent Music Entertainment, ah, got it. which is now, I think, a New York Stock Exchange listed company yes. with a market cap of $20 billion. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, we invested in that company, which was called China Music Corporation, mm. which does the same thing as Spotify does. And we put in $60 million, so we became majority shareholder. And the company hardly had any business at that time. Today, it has 800 million unique monthly users. Wow. And we're making hundreds of millions of dollars in that profit. And we have a market cap today of $20 billion, only after five years. And we merged with Tencent Music, and that's why the name is changed to Tencent Music Entertainment. But the growth has been tremendous. That must say something about the consumer opportunity, I would imagine, Exactly, in in China. Because the Chinese market has become very large. And if you have a business model that's successful, you can replicate it very quickly in this very large country of 1.4 billion people. Which right? is why, whether you're an American company or European company, you know, uh, what have you, you know, you look so closely at that Chinese market because that's how you scale up. Yes, and, stuff. and China is a very big market today. Yeah. And the We've, notion that China was a factory of the world is outdated. We, we have to run, but do come back because we would love to continue. Wei Zhan Shan, he is chairman and CEO at PAG in his book, Out of the Gobi. This is Bloomberg. There are thousands of 
of workers uh, out of work thanks to day 27 of the partial U.S. government shutdown. Lots of headlines even today. State Department ordering staff to return to work, saying it expects to be able to fund most of those salaries. You've got New York City's mayor weighing in, saying New Yorkers are set to lose food stamp benefits on March 1st. There's a lot of things going on. Chris Liu, though, knows about this firsthand. He's former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, currently Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. With us on the phone from Virginia, a friend of our broadcast. Hey, Chris, nice to have you here with us. I have to say, one of the headlines that had me scratching my head is like, well, how can they, you know, pull people back to do things? How can they find money to pay them? How does this work within the government? So this whole thing is a little bit of a gimmick, and and I sort of get what the Trump administration is doing, and I sort of get why Democrats aren't complaining. You know, generally, um, we don't call it essential work anymore. It's accepted work. It's supposed to be to protect health and safety, Uh, and that's the way most uh, administrations have interpreted it. Unless there's another source of funding, or you can sort of, you know, I'm not going to say bend the rules, but, you know, there's a lot of gray areas in the rules. And so what did the Trump administration is doing in order to minimize the impact of the shutdown is coming up with, I would say, creative legal interpretations to get more people coming back, whether it's some um, agriculture department uh, employees who are working on farm loans, whether it's IRS workers who are going to help refunds get out the door. And and it's frankly not in the Democrats' interest to complain because these are essential services. The, 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 the irony of doing this in order to minimize the impact on American people, in some ways it's actually increasing the likelihood that the shutdown goes on longer because a lot of the really detrimental impacts of the shutdown are then muted. Right. And that's a really good point, because I feel like what everyone seems to be saying on both sides of this is it's going to take something pretty dramatic and something pretty public in order to really move either side off of their position. And this does diminish that even from a TSA perspective, you know, early in the week we had much more dire headlines. And by this time in the week, people are saying, well, it's a little worse, but, you know, nothing super crazy to to worry about. So given your experience and looking at this, what could move it? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting case. I mean, you know, over the years, we've increasingly called more activities essential or accepted. Uh, So imagine, for instance, if we said, you know what, TSA employees, don't go to work. Well, if that were actually the case, we would really never have a shutdown. If you said Social Security checks don't go out the door or veterans hospitals don't open. So really the people we're ultimately going to impact are people who um, need to take advantage of sort of the second tier federal services like going to a national park or federal employees and contractors, the people who either aren't getting paid and sitting at home or going to work and still not getting paid. And so given the dynamic right now, it's hard to see what the end game is because In my view, I always thought the American people would have to feel a fair amount of pain for them to communicate to their leaders in order for the shutdown to end. If they don't feel the pain, then members will continue off in this impasse right now. So politically, I mean, how do you see it? Uh, You know, we've talked about in terms of some of the polls that right now it seems like Americans are pointing the finger mostly at President Trump and the Republicans on this. But politically... I don't know if you were on the inside, uh, you know, you got to uh, both sides have got to be worried the longer that this goes on. Oh, uh, agreed. And, you know, we're going to start to see an economic impact, even if you don't have services like um, um, uh, food stamps being cut off. It's still 800,000 people, federal right. employees who aren't getting a paycheck, who aren't spending money. In addition, um, 
thousands, tens of thousands of federal contractors who will never get PAC pay along in that. That's a lot of spending that isn't happening right now. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when we start to get some of this economic data. Now, what's interesting is that some of the data that comes out of the Commerce Department, we're not going to get uh, because they're furloughed. Uh, but when we see the jobs data, when you know the three of us talk in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what that impact is. I suspect it'll be pretty significant. Right. And how do you game something like that? And, and how does the market, you know, if and, and I know you're not <laughs> an investor, right. you have much more accomplished a lot of other things, Chris. But as an investor, that's got to be worrisome for a lot of our listeners and, and viewers who are thinking, well, if if I can't fully trust, may, may not trust the data, but if the data are incomplete or something like that, that's a that's a real issue. Right. Right. And you're going to have one month where, again, assuming the shutdown ends you know, shortly, you'll have one month where the data is wildly off. And you know that once those federal workers get paid, a lot of the spending they weren't doing, well, they will then make. Uh, but then there, there is, I suspect, a lot of other spending that never will have happened. A lot of small businesses who can't get a home, uh, who can't get a loan to expand or farms that can't get a loan, um, that there's going to be kind of this continued ripple impact uh, throughout the economy. What I'm concerned about is that I don't see um, a light at the end of the tunnel. So I think mm. if this goes on yeah. for several more weeks, several more months, we could be in a much more s- serious situation on in an economy that I think a lot of people thought was going to slow down in 2019 already. Right. Yeah, I think I saw something from, uh, I think it was ISI, uh, saying that there's like now a 40% chance that this goes on into February or something like that. So it's certainly picking up steam. Chris Liu, always appreciate your time. Senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. And Chris joining us on the phone from Virginia. And he makes a good point. We've heard it from our team as well that that monthly jobs report, Jason, becomes even more important because that will be, you know, one of the fewer checks that we have on the U.S. economy. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Well, someone who is very much burst on the scene is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, representing a district just up the way from us here in Manhattan. Peter Coy talks about AOC in this week's cover story of Bloomberg Business Week, and it zeroes in. Peter, you and I had a chance to come back from a luncheon yesterday over the Economics Club of New York, and we were talking a little bit about mm-hmm. this story yeah. because – it's not a profile per se. Right. It's actually something I think a little more interesting because it talks about what AOC is talking about as it relates to taxes. Right. We decided to focus in on taxes because that's kind of maybe the most single uh, outstanding thing she's been saying. It just got people's attention. She was on 60 Minutes and she said, uh, you know, the taxes in the past have been 60% to 70% top rates, which actually was understating things. The tax rates actually have been as above 90%, but the the real point was that this sort of shifted the debate because in 2016, Hillary Clinton ran for president and did not propose any increase in the top marginal tax rate. Bernie Sanders, that flaming socialist from Vermont, came out with a number of 52 percent. So talking 60 to 70 is just a whole different realm. And what I argue in the article is that there are a lot of people who are going to disagree with her. A lot of people agree, but the point is that she has shifted the so-called Overton window, which is the realm of ideas that are considered acceptable for even discourse, even for debate at any given time. How is it that the newbie did that? 
I think it's because she's a newbie. I think if you've been around Washington for a while, you just sort of get hemmed in after a while. It's like being in a club. You want to be clubbable. You want to be sort of in the mix, and yeah. you don't want to be. And we we have this in journalism sometimes too. You'll pitch a story, and they'll say, "Well, that'll never happen." And sometimes you have to think, "Well, it's maybe it won't, but." Does it really hurt to be discussing it? And I think, again, I don't want to sound like I'm in favor of this idea, but I think it's a healthy thing when people start talking, well, what is actually a good top marginal rate for an income? Well, and and broadly, it speaks to the megaphone mm-hmm. that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has at this moment, certainly a megaphone that we rarely see with a freshman member of Congress. She uh, is amazing on social media. She is a total master of that. Snapchat and Twitter and on and on. She she uh, has a number... 2.4 million followers just on Twitter. On Twitter. And, and, uh, I just added, so now it's 2.447804 now. Or yeah, something. right. <laughs> uh, so the idea is that she doesn't just... Uh, rely on you know, press releases and standing in front of the, uh, Congress talking to some reporter. She she has her address, which is similar to another character we know named Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. She reaches over the head of the media and all the intermediaries, all of us who have sort of been trying to interpret and says, no, here's my message. And uh, it works. You get it out there enough, Right. In different ways, and, th- and social media, as we know, can be very effective. That you do either start a conversation or move it along. I think that yeah, that's the Overton window idea that you that you can shift. It. Okay, the first step towards getting an idea adopted is getting it talked about. Right, uh, and if, even the people who oppose it are inadvertently helping her just by their hairs on fire, and they talk about it. And it becomes something to talk about. Because you did talk to one of the great characters of our time, especially <laughs> when it comes to taxes, Grover Norquist. He's a character. Um, and he's uh, obviously on the other side of this. Anybody who knows anything about taxes knows he is very much on right. the other side. He famously made many, many people pledge never right. uh, to raise taxes. So with all that in mind, 30, 40 seconds left, where does this go from here? Okay, so the Democrats are controlling one house. But they don't control the Senate, don't control the White House. So for two years, I think it goes kind of nowhere, except that it gains uh, traction maybe in the general public. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see what happens in 2020 if a Democrat wins the White House, right. or if it's a liberal Democrat. If for some reason Democrats somehow win the Senate, things could actually change. It could be quite interesting. When you also think about if it, in contrast to 2016, as you mentioned, if it ends up in the Democratic nominee's platform this time around. Which, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren hasn't quite endorsed the idea, but you can see her edging that direction and so on, yeah. I'm just going to say, we just spent another six, seven minutes talking about it, and we've talked about it earlier in the week, so the conversation continues. We are in the Overton window, all three of us. (laughs) Peter Coy, always a pleasure. You can catch more of our conversation with Peter on this weekend's Business Week show on Bloomberg Radio and TV. And also check out the story. It's available now at the Bloomberg on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Just about 12 minutes left in today's trading session. Back with us is Jim Dunn. He's CEO at Verger Capital. Uh, with us from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And also with us, Bloomberg News Endowments reporter Janet Lauren. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio in New York. Jim, by the way, overseeing about $1.5 billion for nonprofits. That includes Wake Forest University's endowment. So great to have both of you back with us. Jim, this is an interesting market environment. It moves really quickly on headlines and news. We've had quite a bounce from that, at least on the equity side of things, from that December 24th sell-off. How do you see the market environment? What kind of a market environment is it? How would you describe it? I think it's one of the bipolar here. It's um, it's clearly moving on things that in the near term shouldn't move the market at all. And, uh, you know, a uh, a rumor about China should not move the market 100 base, basis points today. So I think you've got to think about it, uh, avoid the noise, but you're looking at a lower return environment. So you really can't make mistakes in this environment. And, so, you know, and one of the questions, Jim, we've been asking a lot of people, we had a, a, a sort of deep value investor on earlier in the show. Is there value in this sort of market, especially given the run-up we've seen after uh, that little low? Where where are we in terms of rotation? Where are we in terms of you know kind of this balance that we look for in a market? Well, I think there's always opportunity, and you think about things like um, EM right now, for example, which hasn't had the big bounce back yet. But I think the the story that we always tell folks is that you know it's kind of like getting a beach body, right? You can't get a beach body and start in June. You've got to start in December. So there's definitely opportunities here to take advantage of, of um, pockets of opportunity, but it may not be in your normal portfolio. It may not be in U.S. stocks. It may be somewhere else. And I think that's where people have to start looking today and, and sort of pick their spots and have a list. Well, endowments haven't seen this kind of volatility in a while. What does that mean for returns and what does that mean for funding scholarships and things like that? Yeah, I think it's a challenging environment. I think universities, uh, there was a recent survey by Cap Trust in North Carolina about most schools were, have expectations between 5 and 8%. And last year, I, mean, I think the calendar year, they were, most of them were down 3 or 4 So it's going to affect financial aid. It's going to affect um, how they build budgets. And um, I think a lot of schools are not prepared. And most of these schools also can't take more than a 10% loss. So, so their portfolios are not well-constructed for that kind of environment. So, Jim, go back to something that I, I wanted to press you a little bit on something you said just a minute ago, which is you sort of have to look beyond uh, the obvious. Are those different instruments or is it different geographies? Is it different durations, different liquidity, all of the above? Where, where do you go in a place like this if you if you have to think more creatively? I think it's all of the above. I think if you look at kind of what, what we've done recently, you know, looking at things like investing in Africa, in the Nordic countries, uh, having a, a short-only manager in our portfolio, looking at, you know, really taking a hard look at hedge funds after 18 months to two and a half years of where they were not very helpful to your portfolio. And, and in December, they were very helpful. So I think you've got to have that in your portfolio now. You can't wait and to decide when volatility picks up, you're not going to add this to your portfolio. You have to have it in the portfolio now and be prepared for it. Yeah, I just think about the story that was in the magazine, right? Just, you know, watching investors maybe not so comfortable with volatility and some of their exposure and maybe needing to, you know, kind of rethink so that, with these big market swings, how do you adjust your portfolio so that you can kind of deal with it and take some of that volatility, you know, out of your portfolio, Jim? Do you guys have to do that when it comes to endowments as well? I guess you do, right? I think it's twofold, Carol. I think, first of all, you have to have the committees be prepared for this. They have to be yeah. ready to say, how much can we lose? What are we willing to lose? And build a portfolio with that in mind. 
you, really, you can only control, control two things, risk and fees. You can't control return. So if you want an 8% return, that's great. What happens when you lose 10%? And I think that applies to not only endowments, but all nonprofit foundations, because a lot of their operating budget comes from these pools of capital. So when you think I'm, – I'm glad you brought up fees because I think it's been on all of our minds today. I think with – candidly with the passing of Jack Bogle who really mm. revolutionized how retail investors at least think about what they pay for investments. I have to imagine giving, given the money that you invest and the people you invest for, fees are top of mind in, in sort of a, a different way. Uh, you mentioned hedge funds, which obviously charge very high fees. What's the sentiment generally around what you're willing to pay right now? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a more of a mix that in passive and active, even in our billion-dollar portfolios. You're seeing folks not pay up for beta or try to understand where the fees are being used, uh, even in private equity. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on private equity firms mm-hmm. to think about kind of what kind of fees you're charging investors, but also what are you paying for companies? And this environment where things have bid, bid up so much – it's really a challenge to think, can you really make a 10% investment if you're paying 2x what you paid four years ago? So are you considering uh, your allocation to private equity? We are in this environment. I think you know, this is one area where I think a lot of schools have really spent a lot of time um, in, the, in the years prior to think about private equity. And in this environment, we're sort of staying away from the mega buyouts. We're staying away from some areas where we think valuations are just too high. And, and private equity managers, while they have lots of capital sloshing around, they're overpaying for these companies because they've got to put the money to work. So where are you going instead? Uh, I think you know, we're looking at, again, I mentioned Africa, one area. I think we're looking at energy after being you know, really beat up um, the last couple of months and last couple of quarters. Um, we're looking at the Nordic countries. Um, we're looking at um, even thinking about more allocations to distressed. While mm-hmm. right now it hasn't been the greatest cycle for distressed, Look at what's happening in Brexit. Look what's happening in the U.S. Look at having a high yield. Um, PG&E is a good example. There's going to be some opportunities for some distressed investments, both public and private, coming up fairly shortly. So, you know, Jim, wanted to ask you about China. You alluded to what uh, the, the volatility, as it were, that we saw just in the market today. How do you think, especially since you're a long-term investor, about this ongoing trade war as it heats up between China and the U.S., but also the effect of trade more broadly on a portfolio that's not just uh, clearly equities? Yeah, there's always opportunity. And again, we, as an endowment, we have to think about you can not only go long, but you can also go short, right? So there's opportunities to take advantage of this, whether it's in, in shipping and in agriculture and soybeans. So we can take a look at China in a bigger framework. But I think what we really worry about for China is sort of the underlying pinnings of their economy, which has been fueled by debt, and this growth is slowing. Now, we do, really do, worry about that. Do I remember you do not invest in China? Is we actually policy? made our first, first investment uh, this year. Uh, in a venture capital fund in China. What made you change your mind? Looking at the amount of IPOs, um, and think about the IPOs of sort of unicorns going on in China was dramatically more um, valuable than what's going on in the U.S. And you know, we're all waiting for Uber and, all, and Lyft to go, to go public, but you know, China's having eight, nine, ten of these companies go public a month. That's and a you're good. starting to see a shift from yeah. 
innovation happening in the U.S. to now it's happening in China. Right. And you're seeing exits as well. This is something we've been certainly confirming in many of the stories in the magazine when it comes to Chinese tech. Jim Dunn, thanks so much over at Verger Capital Management. He's the CEO on the phone from Winston-Salem. Janet Lauren, of course, our endowments reporter here at Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.